Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Today we'll talk about neighbor as a verb. We've covered gospel transformation, and we're actually going to um, kind of re-up that today. Uh, we've uh, covered that we, you and I, we have the value of being saturated with the scripture, that church is family, and today the neighbor is a verb. And so I want to um, give you a phrase, and I want you to hold on to this, because we'll talk about it several times today. You ready? In fact, this, we'll do a little audience participation here. Here's the phrase. If you sow righteousness, you reap love. Okay? So let's take this half of the room right here. Ready? Say it with me. If you sow righteousness, you reap love. That was like a four and a half out of ten. So let's give it one more shot. If you sow righteousness, you reap love. Okay, over here, we won't make this into a competition, but I know you're going to do much better. Ready? If you sow righteousness, you reap love. Teenagers, help carry the ball there, okay? And so you people online, if you want to... No, I'm not going to make it. That would have been weird. Um, So... If you sow righteousness, you reap love. Why is that important? Because if, if we sow righteousness, that is the genuine good. When you hear righteousness, you think about the genuine goodness of God. When that gets sown into our lives, we might think that it will express itself in some particular way. We get a, a, a seed pod there that gets sown, but all of a sudden it produces something far different and, I mean, beautiful and eye-catching and amazing. When you sow the genuine goodness of God into your life and into my life, you reap love. This is what happens. And so today, uh, I want to talk about this. Just a little context here, and we're going to jump into chapter 5, verse 13 in just a second. But Paul, in the, in the book of Galatians, is really ticked off. Like, you ever want to read um, the, 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 where an apostle gets really mad? This is the book of Galatians. And it's, it's, it's around a single issue, but it expresses that issue expresses itself two ways. Um, the single issue is he does not want them to lose the gospel. He has worked and worked and worked to plant churches there in the uh, Galatian area, and he doesn't want them to lose the gospel. There's two ways that happens. Uh, Number one is that you um, add to the gospel. In this particular case, there were people who came along to the churches in the Galatian area, and this is what they said. Hey, we're so glad that you know about Jesus. You need to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And in this particular instance, it was related uh, to circumcision. And so they were saying, you have to be circumcised in order to genuinely be a Christian. And Paul comes along and says, look, it is Jesus and Jesus only. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is Jesus and Jesus plus nothing else. That is the gospel. He has come. He has died for our sins. He has um, uh, uh, risen from the dead. He offers um, forgiveness to anyone who puts their trust in him, expressly repentance, and he gives them eternal life, a life that is indestructible even by death. This is the gospel. And if you try to tack on anything to that, what you are doing is that the power of the gospel is in its purity. And if you try to tack on anything to that, add to it, supplement it in some way, you're actually killing the gospel altogether. You're diluting it. So don't add to the gospel. In verse 1, um, I think it's there in the Bible, but this is what it says. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You, you don't have to step back under religious ritual and requirements. He has set you free. Amen to that. The other way to lose the gospel, though, is to abuse it. 
That, that is, to misunderstand the freedom. So I want to pick now up in verse 13, which is where we're going to focus. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. To abuse the gospel is to misunderstand freedom, because freedom is not license. Here is freedom. This is what freedom sounds like. And, and, and license sounds a lot like it, but it's not. I will sin, but God will forgive me. Anybody have that moment where you're like, I, I know at some point this week, boy, it, I'm not, it's not going to go well for me. I'm going to be stupid. I'm going to act stupid. I'm going to say stupid. I'm going to do stupid. I'm going to do whatever. And, and the freedom comes with, when I come to God with that, I know that he will forgive me. I know that he will. Because he has carried my sin. He has bought with his blood. Every The forgiveness that covers every single one of my sins. I know I will sin, but Jesus, he will forgive me. That's what freedom sounds like. License sounds like this. I will sin because God will forgive me. You hear the difference? Well, I mean, God's going to forgive me anyway. Might as well do what I want. In verse 13 where he says, um, don't use your freedom as an opportunity. That word right there, opportunity, is like outpost. Uh, the, the word there is uh, like a little uh, a staging area or military outpost from which you conduct these operations and do the things that you do. And in this particular case, uh, there were people who would come along and say, well, I, I know I'm going to sin because I, I want to sin because God will forgive me. They use that opportunity to do the things that they want to do. They use that opportunity as a pretext for indulging their sinful nature for a springboard for the activities that they know they ought not do. And Paul is saying, it is an outpost, but don't use that freedom. Don't take that freedom and think it is an opportunity for your flesh. Think, think of it as an opportunity to do good. It is an opportunity to do good. It is uh, the responsibility. That freedom is that responsibility that you and I have to do what is ultimately good. And if you think to yourself, well, I, I will sin because God will forgive me. What I would say to you is that genuine goodness of God that we just sang about, that, that genuine goodness of God that is his righteousness, boy, it's really struggling in you. It looks like our grass outside. It, it's in drought. If, if your mindset is, I have the freedom to do what I want, and I'm going to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, then what you're saying is the genuine goodness of God is really struggling to take root in you. That's how you lose the gospel. You were called, though, to freedom. Do you see that in verse 13? That you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You were called there. That is, we have this opportunity. And in, in doing so, we can serve through love. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity. Flesh, through love, serve one another. Serving is the action. Love is the avenue. And that expresses itself in a particular way. What does it say in verse 14? For the whole law is fulfilled in a single word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I thought, you just, I thought you said we were done with the law. That's exactly right. You're not under the requirements in that sense. But if the genuine goodness of God takes up residence in you, what will come out of you? Like, how will it express itself? Well, if you sow righteousness, you will reap... Oh, see, we're, we're, we're doing this. I like it. If you sow righteousness, we will reap love. That's what we do. So when the genuine goodness of God takes root in you, what comes out of you because the Spirit of God, like he testified in his video earlier, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. The Spirit of Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf, if he is living inside of you, then what will come out looks a whole lot like the life that Jesus lived. 
If you sow righteousness, you reap love. It is an opportunity for you and I. This freedom that we have, that we don't have to fulfill the law to fulfill some religious requirement or obligation. This freedom that we have, excuse me, is an opportunity to serve through love. And we do so by loving our neighbor as ourselves. So here's the question. Why am I obligated then? Or am I obligated to love? And I want to give you... I want to give you something to just mindset shift. You, you don't have to. You get to. And there's a difference. Have to is, uh, right? Get to is the genuine goodness of God is working something. Even if I'm not 100%, even if my tank is not 100% full yet, even if, if it's not fully there, to love my neighbor as myself, I get the opportunity to do that. It's not have to. It's a get to. So I tried to think pastorally this week about us as a church family and thinking about neighbor as a verb. And, and uh, I, I had that question, well, do I have to? I also tried to think personally about this. And that was one of my questions, do I have to? But also, here's the follow-up question. What if I don't want to? Anybody? What if I don't want to love my neighbor? What if I don't really actually love them? So, so just... Let's start here. This is like baseline, right here, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Can we just step into, let's, it's like baseline, let's do no harm. Let's start there. Don't, don't consume one another. Don't bite and devour. Let's start there. But there's more to it than that. Because not biting and devouring isn't exactly the expression of the genuine goodness of God. That not, not chewing one another up online or in person um, is not exactly sowing righteousness and reaping love. What if I don't love my neighbor or I don't want to? C.S. Lewis is really helpful here. This is from his book, Mere Christianity, uh, author from the mid-20th century. Here's what he said. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Don't waste time doing that. Act as if you did. Just start that way. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. And what is that great secret? When you are, excuse me, when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Now just pause here. Think for a second. Some of you survived your ninth year of marriage in this exact way. Some of you survived your, your kid turning 13 in this exact way. No lies told. None. And so this is how it expresses itself. God, your genuine goodness has taken over my life. And while my feelings are not um, fully engaged here, while my feelings aren't necessarily um, all in on this deal, and I may not even like that person, whoever it may be, here's what I know. That if I start to do this, Presently, I will find that you have produced this. Because when you sow righteousness, what happens? You reap love. You reap love. Now, here's what I don't want. I don't want you to think I'm making that stuff up. I don't. So, in the Bible app, and here, it's listed there. But I just want to tell you where I got this. In Hosea chapter 10, Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. And he knows a thing or two uh, about difficult relationships because God had him marry a prostitute. Here's what he says in chapter 10, verse 12. 
sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. See, I don't make this stuff up. I'm not that smart. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. If you sow righteousness, you reap love that expresses itself in this thing called love of neighbor. So, as we've done the past few weeks, I want to take the two most important words out of this. Neighbor is a verb, and I want to lock in on these two words, neighbor and verb. Here's what I want to do. Uh, I just want to highlight some truths that the Bible is saying about the people who are around us. Number one, when it comes to our neighbor, every single person we meet, every single person we meet, I want to say that one more time, every single person we meet has dignity. Every one of them. Why? Because they are created in God's image. The Bible says in Psalm 139 that God knit us together in our mother's womb. I have never knitted anything as far as I know. Certainly not that I can remember. But I have watched some people. It is a very intricate and intimate and hands-on process. And what I want to tell you is the people who are around you and every single person that you will encounter this week, every one of them is made in God's image. He has knit them together. He has put his hands, if you will, on it. And he has brought this thing about. They may not look like us, think like us, act like us, vote like us, realize some things that are true, like we realize things that are true, believe like us, feel like us, eat like us. I don't know. They may not even sin like us. They may sin in their own unique way instead of the ways that we like people to sin. Every single person we meet has dignity. Every one of them. Teachers, you went into classrooms this past week, and every one of your students has dignity. Students, you went into classrooms this week, every one of your classmates and your teacher has God-given dignity. Every one of them. You went to work, and there were employees who reported to you, and there were employers that you report to, and every one of them has dignity. Every one of them. Every person we meet has dignity. That is true from page one of the Bible. And it's important to highlight that. We've talked about this even recently. But I think in our day and in our age, in light of some of the cultural conversations that are happening right now, and some of the the fracturing and and the unwillingness to actually look people in the eye, uh, it's it's easier to just type stuff about them. So the fracturing of that, I think it requires us as a church family to remind ourselves every single person, every one of them, has dignity because they are made in God's image. Secondly, and this is equally true and it is concurrently true, It like at the same time, every single person we meet has a desperate need for the re- redeeming work of God in their lives. Every one of them. There is not a person we meet that does not qualify for Jesus to step into their world and and descend upon them and bring his love to bear such that um, he transforms their hearts and the spiritually dead become spiritually alive. Every single person we meet is in desperate need of God's redeeming work. And you think to yourself, I've got some really polite people who um, I work with or live with or whatever, and I'm sure they're okay. No, every single person we meet is in desperate need of God's redeeming work. Well, these people over here, they're way too far gone. Like they're, I mean, they're way out there. They're doing the things that nobody even talks about in public right now. Every single person we meet is in desperate need of God's redeeming work. Every one of them. 
when it comes to love your neighbor as yourself, when it comes to our particular expression of that as a church family, that neighbor is a verb, these two rails are the rails that we run on. Every one of them. So, therefore, every person we meet is a candidate for being our neighbor. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 10. A guy falls among robbers, gets beat up pretty bad, and gets stuff stolen. Priest comes by, he's like, ooh, yeah, can't touch that. Hope you're going to be okay. Another guy, religious leader, comes by, he's like, nope, 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 going to the temple, can't be unclean. A Samaritan comes by who's not even supposed to interact with Jewish folks. He picks the guy up, puts him on his donkey, rolls him to a place where he can get uh, um, whole again, where he can heal up, and then pays for the whole thing. And Jesus asks the question at the end, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So who was it who actually showed mercy? And everybody's like, well, obviously, Jesus is like, that's how we roll. That's what you do. How do you love your neighbor? Well, you just, you make a neighbor out of those people who are around you. Like, you, you make neighbors. That's what we do. Every person is a candidate uh, to be our neighbor. I, I, when we treat them with dignity, and when we recognize their desperation, that, that, that is when we love our neighbor. I, I want to make a pastoral application here just for us as a church family. One of the, I think, areas uh, that, that might get overlooked in suburban life is our literal neighbors. Like, you know that you have literal neighbors, right? I mean, like, people who live, like, next door to you, like, their, their address is, like, two points higher than yours or, like, odd in your even or whatever it may be. You have literal neighbors. Why? Because you pull up in the driveway and you put the car shade up in the window while the car's still running and then you calculate to yourself it is eight seconds of furnace until I get inside and have AC again. So what do you do? Open the door, turn off the car, jump out, run inside. Eight seconds, right? One of these days it won't be a hundred and whatever it is. And I just want to remind you like there are people who live next to us but just because of the rhythms of our lives, we may not know their name. We may not know their story. We may not know how to pray for them. We may not recognize them if they walked out. We're like, oh, I don't know. Is that a stranger or is that the guy who lives there? I'm not sure. And so what I'm saying is what, what can get lost in suburbia is our actual, literal, physical neighbors. So I just wanted to hold that up to say, Every person is a candidate for you to be your neighbor, including the people who live next door and are your neighbors. That's neighbor. What about verb? Don't miss what he says here. <clears throat> for you were called uh, to freedom, brothers. Only do not use. So use your freedom, but not like this. Don't use it as a freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So use, love, and serve. This is what we're after. These are the verbs. This is what it looks like. When it comes to neighbor is a verb, this is what we're talking about here. And I just wanted to give you these two spheres. I'm going to hold the paper because I have a ton of like specific applications here. Um, <clears throat> I want to give you these two spheres. Th there are opportunities for you um, to live this out within our church family. The little card there was, that was on your seat, 
Um, we kind of did this last week with groups. This is about service. This is an opportunity for you to look at this and go, hey, here's a place where I might be able to step into an opportunity. Listen, I want to be a part of this. I want to get to know some new people. This may be different, but I'm going to go ahead and step in here within our church family. And I'll just give you some, um, uh, give you this example before we get going. In our family, all of our people, all of our people have certain responsibilities. When you holler out trash day in our house, people understand there's some stuff that, got, that just has to get done. Every one of our kids is responsible for not just getting their, their plate or bowl or whatever um, from the dinner table like to the zip code of the sink, but actually getting it into the sink or the dishwasher even better. Like this is just part of the deal. As a church family, excuse me, as a family, certain people have certain responsibilities. And in our particular case, as a church family, that's a reality. So let me start with the little ones. Some of you love little ones. Uh, in our preschool area, uh, there are a couple of spots open to teach Sunday school. You will reiterate to these um, two, three, four-year-olds over and over and over again, God has made them, and he loves them, and he has sent Jesus because he wants to be their friend forever. You will tell that story over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because that sets a foundation um, for these little ones. Uh, there, is, uh, there are people down the hall right now watching over uh, your little ones, and you can step into that in the 830 service or the 11 o'clock service. They rock babies. They hold on to kids. Great. Sunday morning preschool ministry. Uh, there's up, upcoming uh, Wednesday night ministry. We start after Labor Day with preschoolers. And for those of you who are like, eh, I don't want to ever touch a little bit. I'm afraid I'll break them. There are things that you can do behind the scenes. You can cut out crafts, make sure things are ready, prep the lesson, whatever it may be. There's all sorts of opportunities there just in preschool. Um, you can mark it on the card, leave it on your seat. You can go back to the table back there when you're done and uh, when we're done here and do that. Um, regarding kids, Wednesday nights, as I said, is coming up. Um, our, our Kid Connect program is going to relaunch uh, September the 6th, I think, is, is that Wednesday, right after Labor Day. Very exciting stuff. Um, there's still, there are probably two or three spots where they still need uh, people to step in. You have the opportunity to step in and make an eternal difference in the lives of some of these children. And uh, in kids' ministry, one of the things I'm most excited about currently is uh, uh, Monday the 11th, September the 11th. We are going back into um, one of the local elementary schools for a back-to-school Bible club. Uh, really excited. Called Crossroads uh, Bible Club. And very excited. We're going to run it for eight weeks. Uh, I think it's... I think it's eight weeks and uh, looking for about 10 volunteers total. You want to connect with Nina on that or send an uh, email to kids at heritagepark.org. Very exciting. Some of you who are looking for opportunities after school can make investments um, in a public school among them. Very, very exciting. Uh, students, students on Wednesday nights need adults to come hang around. And you think to yourself, what, what, what exactly does that mean? It literally means show up and just hang around for a little bit. Like beat them in ping pong. Uh, tell them all the things, you know, that how superior you are. Or uh, just regale them with stories. Well, back in my day, I mean, you can drop all of that right there. It'd be great. You can do all of that on Wednesday nights. Just hang out. Um, Nicaragua is happening in March. Some of you want to go. There's an interest meeting coming up in a couple of Sundays on the 10th. Uh, there, um, Nicaragua, you want to step in uh, to missions and be a part of that. Student ministry has kind of initiated that and taken the front, uh, the, um, uh, the, the front seat on that. Uh, and then for adults, I, I didn't know how else to say this, but there are front door things that we, that we um, 
that you can step in, opportunities. There are people to greet, people to drive the cart outside, make sure people get to and from and uh, that the parking lot remains uh, patrolled and kind of safe. There are um, hospitality where we get to host things or host people. There are all sorts of things that happen here. We would love, love, love for you uh, to find an opportunity and to step in. Some of you are already, this is not for you. This is, I'm talking about the folks who are like, man, I'd really love to do that. We want you to. That having been said, listen, this is not a recruiting pitch. What this is is highlighting opportunities. How are you going to prove that? Well, here's what I'm saying. Most of the ministry, though, that needs to get done through us, most of the ministry that the Holy Spirit wants to do, most of the um, love of neighbor that is going to get expressed because the righteousness of Jesus has taken root in our lives will not happen inside these walls. Most of the ministry gets done outside of these walls. Most of the ways that we love our neighbor will happen not on a Sunday morning. We want you involved. I mean, that's 100% true. But most of it will happen outside. And so just recently, in my personal reading, the plan that I use has uh, I just finished Luke this morning. And so I just made notes out of my own personal reading. What does this look like? What did Jesus do that expressed love of neighbor? I just made a list. He prayed for them. In Luke chapter 5, in Luke chapter 23, and and, uh, multiple other places, he prayed for the people who were around him. That is one way that Jesus loved his neighbor. He talked to them. There was in particular a story uh, about a woman who was not a Jew. She was, in fact, one one of those people who were like... You just don't talk to. You just like, really? She came up like, my daughter's sick. You got to do something. He kind of put his tongue in his cheek like, ha, 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 ha. No, I'm not doing this. She goes, look, even the dogs eat bread, the, the, uh, the little crumbs that fall off the master's table. Jesus is like, I've never seen faith like this, even among all you guys. Of course it, yeah, it's done. It's done. He spoke to her. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, he shared the gospel with them three different times in, in uh, Luke 9 and Luke 18. He shared the gospel with them. In our particular context, maybe you get all the way to where you say, hey, Jesus has died, he has risen, and he calls you to repent so that you can receive forgiveness. Maybe um, the, the step that you're... Uh, Uh, your conversation will lead you to is just an invitation uh, to be a part of something that we as a church family are doing, whatever that is. He listened to them. Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. He stops. Jesus stops in his mercy. He stops. And he looks at Bartimaeus and says, what do you need? What do you need? I'd love to see. I can do that. He listened to them. He was kind to them. A leper rolls up on Jesus like, if you will, you can make me clean. Here's what the Bible doesn't say. Jesus backed off like, yeah, man, I'll do it from over here though, okay? Is that cool? You know what he did? Walked right up, freaked everybody out. Walked right up and Jesus touched the untouchable and healed them. And church family, I'm just letting you know, there's some untouchables that Jesus wants to touch through you. He was kind to them. 
He practiced generosity. Um, he fed the multitude, and there was so much left over, baskets upon basket. He was patient with them, celebrating them when they got some stuff right, and cautioning them when there was some stuff that, like, well, maybe you need some perspective here. Patient with them. He met a specific need. Luke chapter 13, a woman was bent over, and he looked at the woman and said, hey, you don't have to tolerate this stuff anymore. Satan, Satan's not going to hold on to you like this. Be healed. Um, he cared for them. There was a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Busted all the religious rules of the day. Set everybody afire on that deal. But it's a, it's a blue-collar society. If you've got a withered hand, you don't work. So he healed it. And he ate with them. Multiple times. He just showed up and ate with them. So much so that one of the complaints about Jesus, dude, you eat with tax collectors and sinners. And listen, if he didn't eat with sinners, he would eat alone. And if you and I don't eat with sinners... Well, we wouldn't eat at all, would we? Every single person is made in his image. Every single person is in desperate need of his redeeming work. And nowhere did Jesus love his neighbor more than when he went to the cross for you and for me and died in our place and for our sin. And he rose again victoriously so that you and I, enemies, because we weren't just neighbors. He made us neighbors. We were enemies. We were opposed. We had pledged allegiance to the wrong team and we were wearing the wrong jersey. He made us. Though we were enemies, he brought us into his family and made us his own by granting us forgiveness that he died for and then giving us new life that his resurrection provided. Nowhere do you see love of neighbor more than the cross of Jesus. And that is the way that we get to walk. Neighbor is a verb. Let me pray for us. And we'll take a moment to respond. Um, Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you would um, just settle this down on us because uh, there are specific applications for every single person in here. It's different for people over here than it is over there. It may be even different uh, for two people sitting right next to, next to one another. So I ask, Father, that you would uh, make the application necessary for every person so that um, they know the step that they need to take, whatever it is. And Father, I pray for anyone here who does not know you. I pray, Father, that today would be the day where it becomes a reality for them of what you have done what we've seen portrayed in baptism, what we've talked about from the scriptures, what we have sung about, today would be the day. So we give you that. I'm glad to do so. Make us um, into the kind of people who don't just have a moment, but whose lives are transformed because of this moment. This is what I ask in Christ's name. Everybody said. Amen and amen.